Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James 1, we will read from verse 9. <clears throat> Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Just till there. The first major break is uh, verse 2. The second major break is verse 16, and the third major break is verse 19. So we are in verse 9 through to 11 this morning, so we are still part and parcel of that first major break. So we return this morning to the book of James. In Unbelievably, it's only the ninth sermon, but it felt like we've been in this book for much longer. In the beginning of the series, I gave you a threefold outline of this book. Now, I'm not going to ask you to give it, but may, I may ask you next week. The first is faith tried and tested. That is the major part of chapter 1 up to verse 18. The second uh, part of this book is faith demonstrated. That's 119 through uh, to chapter 5. And then the last is faith illustrated. I said that the main theme of this book is faith that works. Faith that works in and through tangible works of righteousness. The supporting theme, the underlying theme, is wisdom. These two are working in tangent, showing what James desires to see demonstrated in this community to whom he is writing. James demonstrates what it means to know Jesus as Lord and Messiah. He shows that faith that is inactive, unresponsive to the word of God, and unwilling to submit to Jesus as Lord is not saving faith. So we are slowly making our way through this book, and for the most part we focused on trials, and well, we will look at temptation later on, but trials in the believer's life. Understand that this book was written for those who are Jews, and as they received it, they were to read it in one setting. We are not those Jews who are receiving this book in the first century. So for us, we are not only 2,000 years plus removed from them, but also we have a historical and a grammatical disability. We don't know the historical context, and so for us, it takes slightly longer for me, it takes really long because I'm dealing with it uh, one verse at a time. 
Uh, we could probably deal with it in, in larger sections, but there's just so much to deal with. So please do bear with me as we slowly walk through this book. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to draw your attention to what Jane speaks about with regards to poor and rich, those who have and those who have not. The interesting thing in our world is that those who are poor think that if they have more, their problems will be solved. And those who are rich think that if they have more, they will be content. Both are wrong. More does not solve the problem. As a believer, we know that whether we have or whether we have not, our contentment is not in resources, but is in who? Jesus Christ. Today in the church, and probably in this world, there is a two-class system of thinking. We see the world as those who have and those who have not. Those who made it in life and those who are trying to make it in life. Those who live the American dream or South African dream. (laughs) I don't know what that is. And those who are attempting to get to it. Often we think of poverty as a problem. We think that if we don't have what those who have have, then we are lesser than them. Poverty and riches, you may be surprised, is a gift from God. Slow down and let that settle. That God gives those whom he has taken resources from the blessing of demonstrating the quality of their faith in poverty. Whereas also he gives those who are his the ability to have an abundance of resources to help those who are in or without resources. Does it make sense? God gives both poor Christians and rich Christians their circumstances. We generally, whether you are an unbeliever or believer, frown on living as poor. There are those in certain Christian circles who say, well, if you don't have, you don't have faith. You didn't claim it right. You didn't ask right, and so you don't have. All you need to do is claim it in the name of Jesus, right? If you want that house, you want that car, you want that blue-eyed blonde guy or um, brown green-eyed man. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's weird. You just have to claim it and it is yours. As if God works on that basis. We sometimes think that poverty is a judgment from God. Now, in the Old Testament, when they disobeyed, yes, God took the resources. But that was not the only time that God took resources from them. The problem that we have in our society is that we place the burden of the solution on the rich. Let's tax them more so that they can take care of the poor. We take the the responsibility of caring for the poor and we place it on society or the government. 
There are those who believe that the church will usher in the kingdom and they walk foolhardy into the social justice and woke movements. Because if we can eradicate poverty, if we can move the world in the right direction, then Christ will come. Why? Because they believe that things will get better before Christ will come. I don't want to spoil it for you, but the Bible actually says things are going to get what? Worse and worse. If you're not seeing it, wake up. It's not getting better at all. Besides, the church was never given to solve society's social problems. What did Jesus say to the disciples? You will always have the what? Poor with you. They are not your main priority. The poor in the, in the world, in society, is not the focus of the church. In the Old Testament, farmers were not always rich, but they had enough to live by. And what they were commanded to do by God is to leave some aspects of their farm for those who do not have, those who are poor, so that they can come in and glean the outer regions of your farmland and uh, also live. But also, what we find in the Old Testament is that the responsibility to the poor families were the families of the poor families. So the responsibility was not given to the government or to the king, but to those who knew that their families were suffering. They were to step in and help. Today we live in a different world and we say, well, uh, I pay taxes. Or, you know what, um, those who are rich can care for the poor. You know what Paul says about those in the church who are poor? Especially widows, their family members need to take care of them first and foremost. Then, after they have done their duty, then the church needs to look at those who are poor. It starts with the family, but the problem is that we are so, we have such a disintegrated view of the family and its responsibility to its own that we just shove everything off to the government, society, and the rich. Sadly, the evangelical church is bowing to the pressure of the woke crowd. They are bowing to social justice movements. They are trying to undo the actions of the past. They are asking people to, for, to ask forgiveness purely based on the fact that they have a different color skin. They are Christians. Well-known Christians who are apologizing for being white. Just for God making them the way that they are, and now they are apologizing that they have, they have had privilege all their life, and so please forgive me. That's what happens when the church starts to divorce itself from the clear, the crystal clear commands of God. We are not governed by government. We are not governed by the culture. We are governed by God and His Word. When it comes to the poor in the church, we as God's people are responsible to them. We do care for them. 
But first and foremost, we want to give the family opportunity to care for those who are theirs. We think that the solution to our problems is to turn back poverty, to have an equal distribution of wealth, to provide social justice, which is just nothing more than reverse racism. Increasingly, we are seeing Christians bowing to this pressure. Why? Because we have an anemic understanding of what the Bible means uh, when it speaks about poverty. Poverty is not a shame. Now, granted, there are different words that is translated in English as poor. Even beggars are sometimes just translated as poor. And we have to get to that, and probably on Wednesday we will discuss that a little bit further. Now, having said all that, I'm not dealing with social justice, BLM, and the woke movement this morning. Not at all. But I want to show you that we have a wrong perspective, not only in our culture, but also in the church. And it needs to be corrected. The Bible does that correction for us if we only look at what it says in its clear, plain meaning sense of the word. So, in James chapter 1, verse 9 through to 11, we are given a challenge. There are two points that I'm going to make this morning. There's four in total, but two uh, that I'm going to cover this morning. And if you want an outline, here it is. The reality of the humble, and then secondly, the reality of the rich. So number one, the reality of the humble. Number two, the reality of the rich. The two sub-points which we'll uh, deal with next week is the future of the rich, and then the future of the steadfast. So let's give attention to the reality of the humble. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Stop there. James gives a very clear command. Let him boast. Now again, it may sound as if it's a sign of a permission granted to them, but it's actually a very strong command. He must boast is a better translation because that's the force of this verb. It's very emphatic. The one who is a lowly brother, he must boast in his exaltation. There's no choice in the matter. This is the command. This is the imperative. Boast in what you are. Now, firstly, I want you to note here to whom James is speaking. Let the lowly brother. Who's that? Christian, right? Makes sense. Lowly brother, when he speaks about it in uh, verse 2, count it all joy, my brethren. In verse 16, do not perceive my beloved brothers. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brethren. You find it at least 15 or 16 times in this entire book. And James uses this as a, um, a, a way to move his, his message along. It creates subcategories. And this command here is for the Christian. This brother, literally, the, lo- the brother, the lowly one, is the original sense there. Now, what does this word mean? The lowly brother. Well, in, in some translations, it actually says poor. 
And the ESV, I'm not sure if the NASB says humble or um, poor, but there are other translations that indicate it is a poor man. Now, when we think of poor, we think of poverty, those who do not have. That's not this word. Now, we do have in this book, those who are poor, look at verse 2 of chapter 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your, and I want to just make a note here, into your assembly, that is the word synagogue, synagogue. The word synagogue there implies that this is a Jewish community very, very early on in the life of the church, and it actually impacts the entirety of how you interpret this book. So he says, if, if a rich man, a man wearing gold ring and fine clothing, comes into your synagogue, and a poor man, that is the, the man of poverty, the man who has nothing, in shabby clothing also comes in. And you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here, this, in this fine place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. That is the poor man. James uses the poor man in contrast to the man who is rich. The man who has nothing against the man who has everything. But this word here in chapter 1 verse 9 is not that poor man. It's a different word. It means the man of a lowly social status. A man who is cast down, a man who is humble in circumstances and not necessarily socioeconomically poor. Does that make sense? So he's not the poor as in poverty poor, but he's low on the social standing. He doesn't have the position of the rich. He doesn't have the connections. He doesn't have the comfort. He's of a low social standing. That's two different words. It's the same word used in chapter 4, verse 8. Take note. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That is not the word that I was looking for. Oh, verse 10, sorry, there it is. Humble yourself. Um, no, that's not the word either. It's verse 6. That it is. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's my word. The humble, the poor, the lowly one. It's that word that James has in view in verse 9. Keep that in mind. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To the lowly. Not necessarily to the poor. James is not making a contrast between those who have not and those who have. But those who are, are, are in a situation that got there by no means of their own. And I'll explain that in a moment's time. If we think poor as we understand poor in this in this context, in our context, then we are limiting the reward to only those who have nothing. Then James is saying that the poor believer, he and only he exalts in his high exaltation. So then what about those Christians who are rich then? Do they? And those who are middle class, like some of us, 
Are we too exalted in our exaltation? James is talking about those who have owned some things and were not necessarily rich, but could have made it from day to day. Now they are in a situation where they are in a bit of a desperate need because they have been brought low. They are no longer where they were. During the time of James's writing, the Greeks saw man as the measure and the standard of all things. Thus, to be on the low social scale was to be socially unacceptable. It had to be viewed on as shameful. So to be down and not up, not a rich man, not uh, um, the, the, the ends of the world, you uh, were literally frowned upon. In the New Testament, this word takes on a positive meaning, almost in contrast to the Greek philosophy. Concerning the humble, Jesus says that God will exalt him, the humble, in due time. Luke chapter 11, 14 verse 11 and chapter 18 verse 14. The humble, or the poor, not the beggars, the lowly are often contrasted with the proud, such as in chapter 4 verse 6. These humble, lowly Christians are commanded to boast, to glory in something. Pause here for a moment. James is writing to a newly formed community. These are Jews who, around the time of Christ, have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord, and they have been brought into this new identity as Christians, Jewish Christians. By chapter 8 of Acts, we see that persecution breaks out and they have to leave Jerusalem, but only apostles, they remain behind. By chapter 12, we find Herod, who uh, also breaks out in persecution against Christians and further separate them from Jerusalem, hunting them down as it were. These Christians are the targeted audience of James. But interestingly, in chapter 11 of uh, Acts, we have a prophet by the name of Agabus. I think his name is Agabus. Let me just see my notes here. Can't find it. I don't think I put it in. He prophesies that there is going to be a famine in Jerusalem. And around the date AD 46, we have historians tell us that during this time, there was a famine in Jerusalem. James writes between 40 and 45, or 40, 48. So it is in this period that this famine is coming in that James is writing. Now consider this famine doesn't just happen uh, overnight, right? When we had day zero a couple, a couple of years ago, it didn't just happen overnight. It took at least a year or two um, of Receding rain of lack of, of good winters that cause us to get to that stage. And at that stage, you're not really in the famine yet because you still have a storehouse. You still have things um, to fall back on. A famine takes a little longer than just a, a one year without, a rain, without rain. And this is what James, uh, at least uh, the book of Luke, indicates. That for many years, there was probably lack of rain, which meant that their storehouses were slowly fading away and they were now in a desperate state. 
Not only are they persecuted, but these Jews being farmers, being herdsmen, living off the land, their resources are depleting, which means they are becoming needy. They went from middle class, from having to not having, going down the social ladder, as it were. These Christians, persecuted and suffering because of, quote-unquote, poverty. These are the people that James are writing to. Keep that in mind. Suffering because of their faith and suffering because of a circumstance that they are in that they didn't ask for. It's just that it happened that way. Let me step back a little further. Is God sovereign over nature? Yes, He is. So who brought the famine? It is God. How did Agabus know that the famine would come? Because God told him, I'm bringing a famine. It is God who brought about this circumstance, which meant Christians who had, was at this time that James is writing, in a situation where they did not have. How did that come about? By God's doing. Remember what I said in the beginning? God gives the gift of poverty as well as the gift of riches. This is how God does it. You may have been in a situation where you've had, you may not have been rich, but you've had enough to live by. And then suddenly God, through his sovereign plan, removed those things from your life. And you were no longer in that social status. You were down in below. You were in a desperate need. Some of you know that. You've experienced that. To these Christians, notice what he says in verse 2. Count it all joy. Notice what he says in verse 5. If you lack wisdom, ask God. Now notice what he says in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What does he not say? Ask God to change your circumstance. What does he not say? Claim that riches, brother or sister. What does he not say? You have too little faith. What does he not say? You are sinning. That's why you are in the circumstance. What does he say? Flee to God. Depend upon God. Thank God. Trust in God. Count it as an opportunity to demonstrate a joyous attitude despite your circumstance. Think about that. These were real people suffering real pain, real hardship. They were about to die for their faith. And on top of that, their living circumstances change. And what does he say? Exalt. Boast. Take pride in the fact that you are exalted. Wow. Social justice woke Christians. Wake up. There is nothing in Scripture that says, ask God to change your circumstances. Because sometimes God keeps you at that low status the entirety of your life, and you die in that lowly status. Why? Because that does not dictate who you are in Christ. We are what we are in Christ because of who Christ is. We are not what we are in Christ because of what we are socially. Consider this. These persecuted, poor, lowly Christians are suffering. And he says to them, look up. 
and look forward. Don't look down at your circumstance. Look up to God and look forward at your hope. Glory in the reality of your exaltation. So this word means boast, to be proud, to exalt in your exaltation. What on earth does that mean? One author says this, and I quote, It denotes not the arrogant boasting of self-importance, but the joyous pride uh, possessed by the person who values what God values, in quote. I'm going to go a little step further. It's the person that glories in the knowledge of his position in Christ. This is what we find in Paul's writings, that term in Christ, in its incipient form. It's very its infant form. Notice what James says. He doesn't have to finish a sentence because it makes logical sense. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He is stating a reality that is theirs at that moment. You have been exalted. Boast in this. You may be on the low social status in reality in life, but spiritually speaking, you have been exalted. How are you able to be exalted? Well, it tells us later in chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Take note of that. Who do you humble yourselves before? The Lord. Who's the Lord? Go to chapter 1. You don't have to go there. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord is Jesus, who's the Messiah. So humble yourselves before Jesus, who's the Messiah, and Lord, and therefore God. If you humble yourselves before Him, that is a sign of repentance and confession of who He is. Then, look at the end. He will exalt you. This is what Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Your riches is not in this world, but it is positioned in Christ. And James is saying, you have been exalted already. Why? Because their position in Christ is not affected by their socioeconomic or social status. Boast in the reality of what you are. I don't know about you, but that is weighty. Don't look at your social status. Look at what you've become in Christ. Take your eyes off your suffering and look to the one who's exalted you. Take your eyes off the pain and look at the one who's able to carry you through that pain. Believers have value in Christ not because of what they own. They have value in Christ because of what they have become in Christ. We sing that song, My worth is not my own. No, no, forget the rest of the words. (laughs) But then in the chorus it says, I rejoice in Christ my Redeemer. Why can we do that? Because our worth 
is not determined by who we are socially. Zoom out and think about what is happening in our social um, environment. We want to uplift people. We want to take them from a state of poverty, from a state of lowly social economic status, and we want to lift them up because we think if we lift them up, they will be better. The only time that you can be better is if you find life in Christ. And that doesn't mean he's going to change your social economic status. Christ is not the avenue to riches. He's the avenue to eternal riches in him. Understand what James is saying. You are not worth any less because you have less in this world. Your status is determined by your relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Wow. Charismatics battle with us, and there are now evangelicals who battle with us. Charismatics, on the one hand, say, well, it's probably because of sin that you are poor. You have not claimed enough. You don't really, you haven't been baptized in the Spirit, maybe. Or you're not speaking in tongues, because if you spoke in tongues, you would have it. Yet the people who say that, they don't really have it. It's only the pastor and his Cronies that have it. On the other hand, the evangelicals are saying, it is, I'm going to quote this, it is the Christian responsibility, it is our mandate to take care of those who are poor. I don't believe Jesus said that. I know what he said, because it's pretty clear in Matthew 28. Go ye and make what? Disciples. Baptizing, teaching and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the mandate. When anybody adds to that mandate and says, this is our mandate, it's a false gospel. Because that is not what Christ has mandated. Our mandate is to... Make many Christs. That is what a follower of Christ is. To make many believers. To make disciples of Jesus Christ. It is not to solve the social dilemma in this world. James is not calling for a change in society. He's calling for a change of perspective. He's saying, look at your circumstance from God's vantage point. God sees you as exalted because he's the one who exalts you in Christ. He sees you as exalted. It's done. Now, this is an eschatological hope as well, which means it is still a future reality. This is what you are, but it's not fully yet realized. But yet he says, boast in your exaltation. That is now. Boast that you you are exalted. When will you be exalted? When Christ comes. When will your status change from where you are now to what you fully are in Christ? 
when he comes. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The reward is not here, beloved. It is in glory, because our Lord is in glory. Suffering is not our enemy. Being poor is not necessarily a judgment from God. Especially if you suffer on, our, on, um, on the account of our faith. Now there is a mild contrast. <coughs> Some to speak American. A mild contrast in verse 9. It's left out of our translations because of redundancy. Verse 9. It actually says, but let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The contrast is made against the man who's unstable, the man who is double-minded, the man who vacillates and is moved by his circumstances. In contrast to that, you have this guy, the lowly brother, who's in um, the vicissitudes of life, the, the, the changes of life, the, the hardship of life. He's right in the middle of it. And what does he do? He's not moved about by his circumstances. He remains steadfast. He remains true. He remains faithful. Why? Because he boasts in the reality of what he's become. There's an eschatological outlook here. Glory because you are exalted. This is the stated reality. This is what you are. It's already, but not fully yet realized. In verse 12, the steadfast, the steadfast man is the one who endures. This man is the same guy mentioned in verse 2, the same guy mentioned in verse 5, and the same guy mentioned in verse 9. The steadfast guy, the steadfast Christian, is the one who counts it all joy, the one who seeks wisdom from God, is the one who boasts in his exaltation and not complains about his circumstances. It's worth mentioning here that James does not say to the one who is poor and in a needy state, he's there because of his sin. He does not say that he needs to repent or have more faith. He does not say that they should wish that their circumstances were different. But he does say, see your life from God's perspective. That's the point of this chapter. Suffering will come. Hardship will come. Trials will come. Why? Because God brings it. Why does he bring it to mature us? Because we have not yet been perfected. So, if you look at your life from God's perspective, you will see the end. You will see your glorification. You will see your exaltation. And you can joy in that. Rejoice because there's a reversal of fortunes in view. The book of James is an indictment on the woke and social justice movement. It is. If you read of what they expect of Christians today, 
and you go to the book of James, it is the opposite of what the woke movement, what the, the social justice movement are trying to do. Now having said that, James does not excuse believers from the responsibility of caring for those who are suffering. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, why mention that? Because they are suffering. This is not just poor because they, they don't want to work. This is poor because of uncontrollable circumstances that's been brought upon them. And they are now in a state of poverty, in a state of being low. They can't even clothe themselves. Notice what he says. And one of you says to them, go in peace. Be warmed and be filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Isn't that a slap in your face? You come into church, and there's a brother who's barely uh, got meat on his bones because all he eats is cup cup of soup. It's all he can afford. It's five rand. What is it? Four rand, right? It's the cheapest form of nutrients he can get. And you can see this guy fading from what he was to where he is now. And all you say is, brother, I'm praying for you. God be with you. May God bless you. James says, wake up, you numbskull. You can see there's a need. Do something about that. Because that is what living faith looks like. When you see there's a need, you are moved by it. Notice what he says just in the next line. So also faith by itself, if it does not work or have works, is dead. You do nothing, be concerned about who you are. Wow. Just because... The responsibility does not first and foremost lie with the church. Doesn't mean the church is exempt or uh, uh, exempt from doing uh, anything about those who have need. Faith must show works of righteousness, and one of those works is to care for those Christians who are suffering. Brothers and sisters, it is not good enough to pray for those who are battling. It is not good enough. It is not good enough to hope that I am giving to the benevolent uh, fund to, to, to reach one person. James is giving a visual image. If you know that somebody walks into your church and you know that he's suffering and you still do nothing about it, there's something wrong with your faith. You can plead ignorance, and that's a shame as well. Why? Because faith granted by God is not a dead faith. It's a living faith and it demonstrates itself. This is something that South African churches can grow in. We are very self-centered in the way that we conduct ourselves. We are very self-absorbed in the way that we think about the Christian life. As long as I go to church, as long as I attend Bible studies, as long as I pray for the brother, that is okay. That is good enough. It is not. As long as uh, we 
We've covered the bare minimum. It's okay. It is not. If you know there's a need and you do nothing about that, that is cause for concern. That is James's argument. Now in verse 9, James says, this is how you respond when life has dealt you an unfortunate blow. When things go beyond your control and you're stripped from all aspects of life but life. This is how you respond. You boast in what you've become in Christ. Why not say, fight for your right to survive? Because this that James is talking about is an act of dependence upon God. When you glory in what God has done and you're not fighting for what you want, you say, Lord, you do something about it. On the other hand, he says, church, if you see there's a need, wake up and do something about that need. To the suffering brother, he says, glory in what you are. You are exalted. You are lifted up. Low in circumstance, but lofty in position. James takes the eyes of the believer of the nature of the circumstance and places it on what God is doing and what God has done. So firstly, the lowly brother must glory in the reality of the exaltation. Secondly, oh my... (laughs) Let me begin this, and we'll, um, we'll finish it next time. Secondly, the rich must glory in their humiliation. Look at verse 10. And the rich in the humiliation, or in his humiliation, because like a, a flower of the grass, he will pass away. It says that the rich... Need to glory. Where do we get the word glory from? Well, the verb um, in verse 9 actually carries over to verse 10. Boast, glory, uh, be proud in. So the lowly brother needs to boast in, and the rich needs to boast in, or boasts in. This does pose a little bit of a problem. Course from our translations, and having been so far removed from the time of James's writing, they probably understood exactly what he meant. But there's a little bit of an ambiguity here. Let me point it out to you. Notice he does not say rich brother. That's what the text says, right? It says rich. That's a question. Is he talking about a rich brother, or is he talking about a rich person? Now, there are those who are saying that this is a rich Christian, and, and there are those who are saying it's a rich person, an unbeliever. In all fairness, there are good arguments on both sides, and scholars and commentators are pretty much split down the middle. You've got 50% on the one side and then 50% on the other side. Really good guys on the one side, and in the same church, another guy on the other side. So. What do you do with us? Uh, It is a difficult one to deal with. And I've spent two weeks trying to figure out James' argument here. 
I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I've had over this one word. Okay, so I'm going to give you both options. <laughs> yes, it's not a cop-out. I will take a stand. So those who say it's the rich argue that since he's talking about the lowly brother, by implication he's talking about the rich brother. Secondly, since the verb boast relates to what the brother needs to do, the same verb <clears throat> boast relates to what the rich brother needs to do. Thirdly, it's looking at the reversal of circumstances. The rich Christian is now exalted, whereas the lowly brother will be exalted. So they see a kind of reversal of roles where the rich Christian will basically take on the place of the lowly Christian, and the lowly Christian will take on the place of the rich Christian. <clears throat> okay. There are a couple of problems with that, though. But before we get to that, there are those who say it's a rich unbeliever, and they make the case that it's an unbeliever because it doesn't say brother. It doesn't say brother, so it's an unbeliever. Secondly, they say that the ellipsis only relates to the verb. The ellipsis is the one thing carrying over to the next verse. Um, the ellipsis only carries over, uh, the verb only carries over, and not the subject of the previous sentence. Interestingly, lowly describes the subject, which is brother, and in verse 9, the rich is the subject. So, therefore, the sentence has its own subject. You can't have two subjects. If you have two subjects... Um, then the two are related. The two subjects are separate because they are separated by James. So you have the rich subject, and then you have the poor subject. So there's a grammatical argument. Okay, what do we do with this? <clears throat> Number one, there's a mild contrast in the beginning of verse 10. It's the same contrast that's dropped in the beginning of verse 9. It's my alarm. My time is up. Uh, it says, but let the lowly brother, and also in verse 10, but the rich. It's changed because it is not a strong adversative means contrast. It's not a strong adversative. So for that reason, it's sometimes dropped or sometimes just translated as and. But it's actually but. So I would go to say that this is a contrast. The lowly brother, but the rich. Now, it could still be, but the rich brother. I've got a problem with saying it's a rich brother because of the way that James describes what happens to this rich. Look at verse, the end of verse 10. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Notice it's not his riches that will pass away. He will pass away. Look at verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and with uh, withers the grass, its flower falls off, and its beauty perishes. So also will the what? Rich man. You could have said there, because you're so far removed from the original subject, you could have said there, rich brother. And he should have said there, rich brother, but he doesn't. He says, the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. See where I'm going with that? James is saying that there's a contrast between how the believer responds to his hardship and what the rich man does 
When there is hardship, what is the rich man glory in? His possessions. Right? I can make it because I've got a storehouse. I've got a fallback. What is a poor man? What can he glory in? He doesn't have a fallback. When things go south, it goes really south. The rich man says, let it come. It will pass. I have another year's worth of wheat in my... Or if you are like some people, I've got enough toilet paper to last COVID. Don't worry, I'm good. There's a strong emphasis of, on what happens to the rich. Now, those commentators who say he's talking about the poor Christians say that the rich need to humble themselves by either giving away uh, to the poor or not uh, depending upon their rich, um, their riches will pass away. That is not what James is saying. He says the rich boast or um, glory in their humiliation. That's an interesting way to speak about a Christian. If there's a reversal of roles, then the Christian rich will be humiliated in the future and the poor rich will be exalted in the future. That last part is true. But that it means that God has got two standards for a Christian rich and a poor rich. Then the Christian rich is going to be frowned upon in glory and the poor rich will be exalted in glory. I don't want to be a Christian rich if that is the case. Oh, a rich Christian. What convinces me that this is an unbeliever is the way that he describes the nature of this man. Look in verse 11. For the sun rises with his scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls off, and its beauty perishes. All those verbs is given to us in the, in the um, present, but it's actually past. Um, and it's called a gnomic um, eris, but the, the idea here is that something that will happen. It, it's, it's not a, a question of if it will happen, it will happen. This is what normally happens. And he's describing the beauty of a wildflower in the mid-Mediterranean um, or the desert uh, weather. When that sun comes up, and that heat uh, blows over the, the, I think it's called the Seraco, uh, heat blows over that grass that flower has no resistance. It crumbles and dies. It's like walking into a... You know when you open the oven and you get that roof? And especially if you've got the, one of the fan ovens, you know, you, you, you rich people with the fan ovens, and you open that oven and, you know, get that, that, that blow of air, woof, over your face. Uh, when, I remember when we were going to uh, um, Lancaster in, in the USA... We're sitting in the aircon for an hour and a half of driving, could have been longer. And we got to this um, church hall, got out of the car, and it was like that oven door. And my first thought is, what on earth did we get ourselves into? It was a burning um, wind. Now, I've been to Kimberley, I've been to Paul, I've never felt a heat like that. It, it burns the top of your ears, it's that hot. That's why they wear these wide hats because it just it singes everything. That's the kind of wind that he's talking about, the kind of effect that life will have on the rich. There's no resistance. He will eventually pass out. He will eventually pass away. Notice what it says. So also will the rich man fade into nothing is the idea. 
insignificance when? In the midst of his pursuits. While he's still running after it, he's fading away. While he's pursuing his riches, he's dying out. So what does it mean that he glories in humiliation? It's irony. James says, let him glory. Let him glory in his riches. Let him say, I've got a fallback. Let him glory in that which is temporal. Because that is his humiliation. It's not going to stand up in the day of the Lord. It's not going to stand up before Christ. Because he will not be exalted. But you will be. This guy has a miserable end. That cannot be a Christian because a Christian does not have a miserable end. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man, now not just the lowly. Blessed is the man, this is the Christian who remains steadfast under a trial, whether rich or not rich. If you remain steadfast, if you remain true, if you depend upon God, if you remain faithful to Him, then you will receive the crown of life. This is an unbeliever. And he hasn't, this is not the first time he does this. He does this in the previous verse as well, where he contrasts the believer in his life and his response to trials and the unbeliever. James is saying, as a believer, don't look at your poverty. Don't look at your low social circumstances. Don't wish you were like the rich. Why? Because even in his pursuit, he will die. And that will be his humiliation because he's depending on temporal things. Listen, life doesn't get better because you have more. More riches is not a solution. More faith and dependence upon God is what we need in life. I'm going to end on that. James turns the eyes of the believer away from the affliction onto the eternal reward. That means don't make too much of this life. Because the riches of this life is temporal, just like the rich man of this life. Don't think that joy and satisfaction is found in the fleeting flux of material. It is only found in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah. Father, thank you for such gracious words that you are the one who exalt those who are brought low by this life. Father, I pray that you would grant wisdom, because we don't know how to respond. We don't know what to do with our riches, we don't know what to do with our poverty. But we pray, Lord, that you would bring clarity, not only so, but the ability to live in a way that honors you. We pray that you would help us to see how our exaltation can cause us to glory in what you have done for us. Father, we pray for those who are suffering. Pray that you would open our hearts to those who are in desperate need. Help us to not be speakers of the word, but doers of the word. Help us not only to be hearers of the word, but those who act upon the commands of the word. Forgive us where we fail in so many ways, Lord. And help us to honor you in our responses. Thank you for this truth. Change our lives by it and sanctify us through it as we give thanks in your name. Amen.